My name is John Lovewell. I'm a member of the Northern California chapter, but I'm also the vice chairman of the board of this school. Only me in the Q&A. So I'm out here from California also. Um, this is the Marlott Mansion, which is one of uh, two buildings that the Institute of World Ca uh, Politics has as its campus. We have another building next door that has a library and classrooms and so on. This building is mostly administration upstairs. It's got kind of an interesting history, though, because it was a, built in the early part of uh, the 20th century by a man. Uh, a, what's a bug scientist called? An epidemiologist? Is that right? Etymologist. Okay, anyway. Uh, his name was Marlott, and if you look at the uh, carvings around the room and out in the hallway, you'll see bugs carved into it. Uh, that's the first part of the history, and then sometime in the 70s, John, was it? Yeah, in the 70s, the KGB took over this building, and we had a different kind of bug. <laughs> and then uh, one of our uh, generous benefactors bought this building and the building next door and retrofitted all that to make it a, a complete classroom building and a library. And, uh, and we rented the building for a below market rent for about 20 years, and, and then last year, we, we had a silver anniversary campaign, 25 years as a school, and we bought the building. I've been a trustee at the Institute of World Politics for about 12 years. As many of you know, the Institute is an independent graduate school of national security and world affairs. We offer five master's degrees and 17 certificate programs in various aspects of national security, statecraft, and intelligence. Last evening at our uh, annual Chancellor's Council dinner, we announced that our accrediting agency, the Middle States Commission on Higher Education, has approved our plan to launch a doctoral program, which we hope to do in the spring. About 45% of our 150 students are mid-career professionals from the intelligence community, the military, the foreign service, or the legislative or executive branches. And this makes for some very stimulating classroom environments for recent college grads. Can you imagine, for example, one of our students right now is a 23-year Army veteran who for about 15 months briefed President Obama every day. How would you like to sit next to her in a class? Uh, another story I like to tell is that uh, our founder, John Lynchowski, went to the CIA a few years ago and he, and he asked one of the officers of the CIA, why aren't you sending us any mid-career professionals to go to our school? John, we are. We are. <laughs> we also have students from abroad. For example, we currently have four mid-level to senior uh, Army officer fellows from Poland. The school is dedicated to developing leaders with a sound understanding of international realities and the ethical conduct of statecraft, all based on knowledge and appreciation of the founding principles of the American political economy and the Western moral tradition. In the universe of graduate programs of diplomacy and international affairs, IWP is completely unique by virtue of its American-centric worldview, its curriculum, and its faculty. This is kind of hard to believe, but it's absolutely true. It is completely unique in the pantheon of uh, other uh, schools of diplomacy. Dr. Lynchowski, our founder, and Dr. Sebastian Gorka will discuss this in more detail tonight at our dinner, 
as in the keynote, keynote addresses. But I would say this. We believe our principled and informed graduates can improve the culture and effectiveness of leadership in Washington. We believe they have the knowledge and the character to defend and protect our liberty while reducing the potential for war. In fact, this is a central idea, that our nation is more likely to win without war if our leaders fully embrace the complete range of statecraft arts, including all the arts of both hard and soft power. In addition to military power, diplomacy, economic influence, intelligence, and counterintelligence, the soft power arts of public diplomacy, political influence, opinion formation, and cultural outreach are vital to winning hearts and minds and discrediting tyranny and evil. This full-spectrum statecraft concept is based in part on John Lenchowski's experience in the Reagan White House as one of the architects of the Cold War strategy which defeated the Soviet Union without firing a shot. Many of the instruments of statecraft which contributed to the victory have since been lost or neglected within the government. Reintroducing full-spectrum integrated strategy and the lost arts of soft power which won the Cold War is a critical part of the mission of the Institute. I hope you agree that given the many threats our nation faces today, this kind of leadership is vital to our future and to future generations. As virtually the only repository, the only repository, of rare and precious knowledge, coupled with its focus on character formation and the American version of Western civilization, IWP constitutes a national treasure. If IWP succeeds in its mission, if we can improve the culture and effectiveness of leadership in Washington, then our children and grandchildren will have a much better chance of enjoying the freedom and prosperity of all of us that all of us in this room have enjoyed. That's why I'm privileged to serve. Uh, this afternoon we're going to give you three brief presentations. We're, we're accelerating because I know you're on a tight schedule. Uh, from two professors and also from a recent alumnus to give you a sense of the expertise found at IWP. These are appetizers for the keynote addresses this evening at dinner. If time allows, we'll have a brief question and answer session during the question, with the, using the question cards at your seat. But I've got to watch the clock carefully because we've got to be over at the uh, Army-Navy Club by 6 o'clock at the latest. Our first presenter is an excellent example of soft power at work in the war against radical Islamism, as you will see. Matt Daniels is a, is the chair of law, holds the Chair of Law and Human Rights at IWP and is the founder of the Center for Human Rights and International Affairs at IWP. Matt was raised by a single mother in a section of Spanish Harlem with the highest rate of violent crime in New York City. When he was eight years old, his mother was the victim of a serious violent crime that left her partly disabled. She went, to welfare, she went on welfare and remained on welfare for the rest of her life. After attending inner city public schools in New York, Daniels received a full scholarship from Dartmouth College where he graduated Phi Beta Kappa in 1985. He later received a public interest law scholarship in the University of Pennsylvania Law School where he obtained both his law degree and a master's in public administration. He was subsequently awarded a doctoral fellowship in American politics to study judicial policy making and the rule of law at Brandeis University. 
After launching an online video, here's a Silicon Valley story. After launching an online video port uh, portal in partnership with venture capitalist uh, specialist uh, Sequoia Capital, the lead backer of YouTube and Google, Dr. Daniels received a major Templeton Foundation grant to, to found Good of All, an international public education movement dedicated to promoting universal human rights in the digital age. Building from an initial base in South Korea, uh, he, had, he has launched a half a dozen academic centers on three continents and has reached over 18 million people online. Dr. Daniels has a wide range of international and domestic affiliations and experience, generally in the field of human rights. He's an expert on using social media to discredit radical Islamism and win hearts and minds in the Muslim world. He's the founder of UniversalRights.com. You might make a note of that, UniversalRights.com, which he will discuss today. His story is an excellent example of using soft power to win without war. Matt. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, if, if you're Republicans from California, I know that you are resolute, committed people. Because that is a hard state to be a Republican. Um, and you're also seeing the future to some extent in your state. Um, so our world is uh, weary of the seemingly endless um, parade of terrorist attacks uh, that are defining our era. <clears throat> and I sometimes wonder if, if we can imagine what it would look like to actually win the war on terror, to have this pass into history like other terrible threats that uh, threaten the, the freedom of our world, like fascism and, and uh, Marxism. And I want to paint a picture for you, uh, John touched on this a little bit in his remarks, um, of what that might look like and how we might get there. And it's a, it's a picture that is about ideas and soft power, which I actually think is the key to victory. Uh, I'm all for apprehending and killing terrorists who want to take innocent lives, but I think the real victory comes from winning a war of ideas. We all remember the Berlin Wall came down without a bullet being fired or a bomb being dropped, because we won the war of ideas against communist totalitarian ideology. And that is, in a sense, the best possible picture for you to grab a hold of, uh, to imagine what it will look like if we one day win the war against Islamist totalitarian ideology. We will win when we have spread ideas, especially the next generation, that collapse the narrative of the Islamists from within that expose its bankruptcy, its hypocrisy, the way the Soviet uh, Union eventually collapsed from within because its ideology was so manifestly bankrupt. Um, and a key to winning that battle, the key, is the dream of the American founders that inspired uh, the uh, founding documents of our nation this, this dream of a government that respects inalienable rights, human dignity, the rule of law, and democracy. That dream is where we find the power to collapse the Islamist narrative. And one of the great problems of our age, and it's a serious problem, is that many in the academic establishment of the United States are hostile to that dream. And that's like being hostile to the cure for penicillin. It's, it's like being hostile to penicillin when people are dying 
in the street. They literally have become hostile to the, the one and only thing that will give us the lasting victory. Because that dream has power. It is a timeless dream. It is... Uh, Never underestimate the beauty and power of that dream to people suffering in cultures where their rights are denied, where they don't have freedom. That's the dream that we're trying to spread through digital media. Our goal is to, I made this little acronym last night just for fun. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a mnemonic, IWP. Our goal is to spread the ideas that break down the walls of oppression through the web to try to increase peace in our world. Um, Ideas actually can break down walls. They can break down walls in individual minds, they can break down walls in institutions, and they can break down walls in uh, societies. Let me talk a little bit about how we're trying to do that. Uh, just by way of background, um, you'll have, you have some handouts. You'll see some of our endorsers. You know, it's very interesting for me, um, folks who are experts in national security, who have to sometimes fight wars, are actually the first, in my experience, to understand the limits of hard power, military force, in part because they have to risk their lives, their friends risk their lives, they know what a perilous endeavor it is to go to war. And it's often politicians who are more willing to talk in terms of war than folks from the military. So our earliest supporters for this strategy that I'm gonna share with you were two former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, former commander of NATO, for, uh, current chair of the Homeland Security Advisory Council, all of them veterans, all of them experienced in the use of hard power. Um, and you'll see uh, one of the uh, pieces in your packet there, a piece called Winning Without War that uh, General Dick Myers, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, wrote with me. You'll see some of the ideas there. Let me give you some background. Um, in this war on terror, uh, there are a couple of um, things that we've tended to overlook in the West. Uh, the first one is the reality of evil. Um, the elites of the West, by virtue of being highly secularized, really have trouble contending with movements that are rooted in evil. I mean, yeah. ISIS is like the Third Reich. I call them the Fourth Reich. You cannot explain the depth of their cruelty simply in rational terms. They're, you cannot sit, explain the extent and depth of their cruelty and barbarism just with reference to economics or you know, they didn't have enough education or they need better job opportunities. You know, some of the architects of the Third Reich were the best educated people in Europe who had all the opportunities before them. Some of the people who are involved in, in the, the atrocities of Islamist totalitarianism are, are PhDs with the whole world right in front of them. So there's something about evil that we have to contend with and, and I'm finding that the secular elites of the West don't have an answer to uh, the transcendent claims of evil. I personally believe that if you're going to go up against militant evil, you better have militant good on your side. <laughs> and that's why um, we need to draw upon ideas like the dream of our founders, that people had certain inalienable rights, that this was the foundation of all government, that this was more primary than government itself. These are not a gift from the state. You know, all these ideas. You're familiar with these. Um, the other problem we've had in confronting Islamist ideology is it's not just a bunch of guys with AK-47s <laughs> that we're up against. We're up against ideas that are spreading through the internet and they can't be killed by bombs or missiles. Hard power can't kill the idea virus of Islamist totalitarianism and the dream of the global caliphate, etc., which will take different forms over time. Um, let me talk about the American Academy a little more. Um, in the American Academy, 
you have this uh, love affair with cultural relativism. And cultural relativism is committed to the proposition that you can't say that some values are better than others. This is suicide. If we can't step up and say that some values are inherently superior, that, uh, that they're worth fighting for and dying for, that they unleash human potential, that they're better than other ideas, we're dead as a nation. Uh, and uh, that's why so many folks in our intellectual elites are incapable of confronting the Islamist totalitarian threat because they're embarrassed by the, the ideas that have always made America great. Um, and finally, um, we've tended to rely a little too much on hard power in fighting the war on terror. Let me quote a couple of the military endorsers who've been mentors to me, a couple funny quotes. Uh, General Pete Pace, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, first Marine to become chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he said to me when we started talking about this subject, he said, you know, Matt, when I was chairman, I felt like we were playing terrorist whack-a-mole. You know that game where the things pop up? It's an old game. You guys, if you say that to a younger audience, they're like, what's that? But you guys know what whack-a-mole is. Look, we're playing terrorist whack-a-mole. I want to take the back of the machine off and pull the wires out so those things will stop popping up. I said, well, that's kind of what we do, Pete. <laughs> you know? uh, and then Admiral Stavridis, uh, former commander of NATO, uh, who's an, endo an endorser, he said, we should, we, should we should launch 10 good ideas for every Tomahawk missile we fire, and it would be a lot cheaper. Mm. Dick Myers, when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs, did his, had the Pentagon do a study, and they found that for every dollar that's spent on soft power, they save $100 in spending on hard power. Um, now, I'm going to pause and ask a, a question. I always have fun asking this question, and it's actually relevant to what I'm going to share with you here today. You can't answer this question if you're under 50, okay? If you're over 50, you can answer this question. So this is based on a real study. Take a group of young people <clears throat> who've been raised on the internet, we call them digital natives, and you say to them, you have got a serious health problem. This serious health problem is going to change your life. You need to educate yourself about this condition. There are alternative treatments available. They also have very different ramifications for you and for your future. Go on the web and educate yourself. Where do you think they go? Please, anybody? Google, okay. Oh, you, he cut to the chase, who did, who did that? Everybody says Google, WebMD, you know, Wikipedia. Wrong, 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 wrong. All wrong, scary. The reality is YouTube. They go to YouTube because it has to be visual. Vi video is the new lingua franca, common language. Text is Latin. So when you talk in text, you're speaking Latin to them and they're not hearing you. I mean, they can read, but they don't. It's called illiterate. They're not illiterate, they're or they're illiterate, I guess. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so we decided to experiment with YouTube. I know a little bit about YouTube because of my work with Sequoia Capital to see if we could create um, a model for um, spreading the principles of universal rights, the concepts that are at the center of the American founding, inalienable rights and so on, human dignity, democracy, rule of law. Could we spread them through visual media online? And we came up with, well, I'm gonna show you some examples in a moment here. Um, but the, uh, the, 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 the model has the following attributes. Uh, it's visual. It's narrative. We use entertainment content. I actually have my students doing movie and gaming reviews because they get so many hits on YouTube for these movies and these games. So people come to us to watch these clips and then we train them to actually deliver a couple of points on uh, human rights. Um, uh, our fastest growing audience online is young Muslim women who have access to the internet. They love our stuff. 
And then, I, by virtue of my work in the UK at a law school where I have an academic center, I started working with Muslim women, training them to be content creators. So the other part of this model is, we train these people to be content creators to their peers online. Why? Because young people don't want to listen to governments or institutions or authorities. They're very different. They want to listen. They want lateral peer-to-peer -peer communication of ideas. And so this this has the potential to spread because they listen to their peers. So we train young people to create videos for YouTube that teach human rights principles. Uh, we're going to show you some examples. Every one of these videos was done by a Muslim student. I'm going to talk a little bit about what I've learned from working with these, these Muslim students and what it means for the future. So can we uh, show a couple of these clips? Hopefully it works. So what you're going to see, this first clip is, uh, I should have introduced this better, it's a movie called The Stoning of Soraya M. It's a true story about a woman Use in Iran. Use the microphone. Use huh? the microphone. They can't hear you in the back. The microphone, right? Sorry. This is this first clip you're going to see is The Stoning of Soraya M. It's a, based on a true story of a woman framed for adultery by her husband in Iran in a rural village, stoned to death. Basically, you're guilty once your husband says you're guilty. And um, somebody made a movie about it, and it was banned in Iran. Quick comment, Tracy Price, our past president of Lincoln Club, is the one to produce that movie. Well, there you go. You're in the right spot. I didn't know that. Wow, that's a providential convergence. Okay. One woman is convicted by a group of men for a fabricated crime. Then his punishment for that crime is tied up and buried up to her waist, defenseless, while another group consisting largely of men throws stones at her from a distance. If there's any act more cowardly and inhumane than this, it's hard to imagine. Though the follow-up comes close. Another group, consisting largely of men with the power to actually make changes this time, deciding that the story shouldn't be heard, that the film should be banned. It's one thing for a rogue group of individuals to commit a heinous human rights abuse. It's quite another to see this level of spinelessness multiplied on an institutional level. Right, can you pause for a second? This yeah. next one is about acid attacks in Pakistan, which happen far more often than you can possibly yeah. imagine. Usually, as revenge by men against women who, you know, turn down marriage proposals, or you know, it's usually a way to sort of exercise power over a woman who has, in some way, the, you know, sexually offended the man. So, good. <laughs> Sinafis, that was the plight of mostly low-income women in Pakistan who have been disfigured by acid being thrown at them. The victims are mostly female and the perpetrators male who use acid as a form of revenge for refusal of set advances 
proposals of marriage and demands for dowry. The lack of law enforcement to catch the perpetrators led to a growing increase in acid victims. A study by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation estimates at least 750 victims of acid and burn violence each year in Pakistan. So the reason, the reason that's so common is that nobody prosecutes the perpetrator usually. Um, it's unbelievably tragic. Um, the next one we're going to show you, by the way, I'm, I'm hitting it kind of hard here with documentaries. A lot of our stuff isn't this hard hitting, but I want, I want to get through to you a point about these young Muslims that I'll make in a minute. This piece is by a Muslim student at IWP whose father is an ambassador here in town who approached me and said, you know, as a Muslim man, I feel like I have to say something about what ISIS is doing to women in the name of God and religion. I just, I've got to say something. So this was his first movie review with us. Uh, he approached me. Um, it's about ISIS and their use of sexual slavery. Are you also raping a nine-year-old? Of course. He told me, it's okay in our religion to take a nine-year-old girl. I said, don't tell me this. ISIS has used enslavement for it to recruit more local and foreign fighters. This is a barbaric practice that millions of Muslims regard as evil and utterly unsupported by Islamic law. The women victimized by ISIS have faced unimaginable horrors, and they need our help. The terror inflicted by the mass rape of women affects even those captives who are not violated themselves. There's no problem with normal relations between boys and girls. It's now the capital of terror in the world. Raqqa was home to many educated women like Muna. She tried to resist the oppression and bring ISIS's abuses to the world's attention. Universal Declaration of Human Rights protects the rights of all human beings. Those who follow the teachings of Islam have a special reason to confront the false religious and moral claims of ISIS. Muslims around the world should make it clear that the suffering of these women and children can never be justified in the name of God or religion. Okay, so this last clip I'm going to show you came out of a class I did where we were comparing the Third Reich and ISIS, which I call the Fourth Reich. And the more we got into it, the more eerie the parallels became. You know, on the surface, they're very different because the Nazis were militantly secular. ISIS, at least in their, in their mind, is militantly religious. But, but once you dispose of those superficial distinctions, you discover the same dark sort of threads running through these ideologies, a, a belief that they can cleanse the world through mass violence, uh, the scapegoating of groups so that their elimination is supposedly going to usher in a new era of renewal, right? 
the, the, the gratuitous use of barbarism and cruelty in a way that boggles the mind of the civilized, almost like a celebration of brutality and violence. Um, uh, and this is one of my uh, Muslim students who did a, an analysis of ISIS propaganda films. For those who are the victims of such barbarism, ISIS is indeed a fourth Reich. However, unlike the Nazis, ISIS makes no effort to hide its crimes against humanity, videotaping their atrocities and posting them online for the entire world to see. This imposes a much higher burden on the civilized nations of the world to bring ISIS to justice, since claiming ignorance of their atrocities is not an option. If the world does not bring ISIS to justice through another Nuremberg-style tribunal for crimes against humanity, then ISIS will have succeeded in their repudiation of the entire human rights enterprise. And our generation will go down in history as the generation that did nothing effective to stop the equivalent of the Holocaust. So I hope you got what's happening here. You have young minds in the Muslim community internalizing these principles and ideals and then passionately expressing them and applying them to human rights abuses in our world. And the more I've done this and the more I've watched this happen, the more I've realized that um, this is one of the keys to winning the war on terror, is reaching the next generation of young Muslims, all of whom can be reached online. There are some exceptions, Saudi Arabia and a few nations with very draconian internet censorship, but setting aside a few countries, the entire next generation of Muslims is online right now and can be reached. So shame on us if we don't go to them with the ideas that are the antidote to the idea virus, if you will, of Islamist totalitarianism. Um, the more I get into this, the more I realize the world is ours to win if we will just use the right tools and not be afraid of the ideas that make this country great. If we're tied in knots, about the ideas of the American founding, if we're embarrassed about our history, what we stand for as a country, we have nothing to offer the world. The world is desperate for these ideas. These women are desperate for these ideas. You know, part of it, it's been an education for me teaching them. The woman who did the video on acid attacks, she sat in my class in London and said nothing for several weeks. <clears throat> and then one day, one of my Indian students, a woman, did a piece on this terrible problem of gang rape in rural India against women. It's also a country where men don't get prosecuted, by and large, especially if they're powerful. And in the middle of the discussion of this gang rape documentary, the Muslim girl at the back of the class goes, that's wrong with, that's what's wrong with my country, that's happening in my country, people don't talk about it, if I try to talk about it with my family, they get angry, and the whole class just goes silent. And I said, well, that looks like you're in the right place, because we've got a platform for you. Now, their names are not on these videos, they can't be punished. We give them a megaphone to the whole world to say what they really think and they can't be punished for it. She came back to me several weeks later after doing some of these videos. She said, this is the first time in my life I've been able to say what I think about what's going on in my society. There are millions and millions of young Muslims like that girl and that guy. Give him credit, he stood up, right? Those, those are the ones we have to reach. So my closing point here, um, we need to dream big about um, winning the war on terror because it can be won just as we won the Cold War. And it's going to be one with the same dream, the transcendent dream of inalienable universal rights for all people. That is the timeless dream that can undermine the militant evil of Islamist totalitarianism. The dream can be spread through the web 
And one day, I hope in our lifetime, we may awake and we will find that the ambitions of ISIS and their progeny have faded into history like the Soviet Union and has become nothing more than a bad nightmare for future generations. Uh, we can do that. We have all the tools. We just have to use them. Thank you for your time. Matt's on an incredible journey. If you would like to go with him, please uh, feel free to contact him through the internet or if you want to uh, be a supporter of what he's trying to do. Uh, I'm sure he'll... Are you going to come to the dinner tonight? Yeah. Yeah, he'll be the, at the dinner tonight. <clears throat> so I encourage you to get to know him. He's a great guy. Our next speaker um, is Brandon Weikert. He's a, a, night, uh, a graduate of our school in 2016. He's a geopolitical analyst who's accomplished an amazing amount of things in a short period of time. He specializes in U.S. national security and Eurasian affairs. He is the founder of the Weikert Report, a world news website, as well as contributing editor for American Greatness. Uh, he graduated from DePaul University with a B.A. in poli-sci and has an M.A. in statecraft and national security affairs with a specialization in defense policy from this institute. He is also an associate member of New College at Oxford University and previously served as a congressional staff member. Recently, Mr. Weikart was invited to become a lecturer for the Kokusko Chair of Polish Studies at the Institute of World Politics. In this role, Brandon has spoken on various topics, such as the rise of Erdogan's new empire in Turkey, the true ambitions of Russian foreign policy, does Europe need nukes, and he was asked by the Polish-American Congress to speak to the House Polish Caucus on the German-French-Russian alliance and its threat to Poland. He's a contributing editor for American Greatness and has been a prolific writer for Real Clear Politics and other publications. Ladies and gentlemen, keep your eyes on this young man. He's doing some interesting work in the media and on behalf of the country, and today he's going to talk to you about space defense. Thank you all for coming from beautiful sunny California. Um, today we're going to be talking about a topic that is not often talked about, and that is national security space policy. I'm very heartened today to announce that Vice President Pence convened the first quarterly meeting of the White House Space Council at the Smithsonian Institute, where they announced that they were going to begin the Trump administration reinvigorating our manned space program. However, Thank you. Yes, this is this is a very near near subject. Morning. That was this morning at 10 a.m. That's yeah. correct. Um, this comes on the heels, unfortunately, of China's announcement yesterday that their quantum internet works, and it is they are now investing 10 billion dollars into doubling down on the technology. The quantum internet is an unhackable uh, technology. It is aimed at removing the current internet and replacing it with a Chinese dominated new form of communications that uh, our NSA will not likely be able to hack and that will empower the Chinese as never before. It is a revolutionary technology. I hate to sound like, uh, I hate to Where sound... Where are we with that idea? That's exactly right. That's exactly, I'm going to be touching about that in a few seconds, but I hate to sound like Thomas Friedman, uh, but that did used to be us and so let's get into it. Um, today, America is losing the space war. 
The vice president's announcement was excellent. We needed it, but we needed it a decade ago. So this is not far enough. I don't want to, you know, bite the hands that feeds us, but I'm going to say here, space policy is so far behind right now, and we don't have an integrated strategy for dealing with space at the geopolitical level. So here in, at this institute, they teach geopolitics, and they've been doing that even when people in D.C. were saying we don't need to study it anymore in the 90s. Um, and so you look at the history of China, you look at the, the threats that they're posing to us and what they're investing their considerable money, thanks to us, uh, into, and it's quite frightful. Every war we fought since Desert Storm has been a space war. Desert Storm was America's first space war. We used GPS, Schwarzkopf's famous left hook through the desert that took the armor, into Iraq, that was all GPS, satellites. The entire system that we depend on as civilians, cell phones, banking transactions, every signal goes through space. Here's the problem though, at least in the military side, which military is linked together thanks to our satellite system, but the military satellite networks in particular are antiquated. And thanks to the DOD procurement process, how the Defense Department acquires weapons and systems, um, it is still based on the 1960s model. So we are using uh, analog style procurement processes for what is the sine qua non, the essential element of America's military today. The Bin Laden raid would not have happened the way it did without the interlinks provided by satellites. Our thunder run into Baghdad, I'm not going to get into the Iraq war here, but I'll say we toppled with relatively few people um, the Iraq in 21 days with the fact that we were using integrated forces. And so while we enjoyed what Charles Krauthammer referred to as the unipolar moment in the 90s when America was the colossus that straddled the world, no one would dare challenge us. Robert Gilpin talks about the hegemonic stability theory being the best way to run an international policy. He's right. Basically, one power is so powerful, like us or like Athens of old, uh, that no one would dare challenge us, and that in and of itself creates stability. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, the forces of globalization, while there have been very good things from globalization, there have been also very bad things. And one of the unforeseen consequences was we ended up basically redistributing wealth away from the United States and therefore America's military, and we sent it over to places like China. And so now today, we talk a lot about uh, the rise of the multipolar world, a world dominated by many great powers other than the United States. And China is a leading pole in that multipolar world, and they're ascending. And by the way, unfortunately, we are declining. Relative decline has set in. It is not inexorable. We can reverse it, but it requires bold action. Our problems today are political. Um, you have in your packets, uh, there's an article I wrote for American Greatness. I write several pieces on this subject. Uh, an article for American Greatness recently called The Way, up is, uh, the Way Forward is Up. And uh, it's a one and a half pager. Uh, basically, the argument is America needs a silver bullet. We have let other powers rise to such a point that we can't do incremental changes to the way we do business in order to stay competitive and to stay dominant. We basically now are at such a point, we've rested on our laurels for so long, that we need a massive infusion of, 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 of money and capital and some real innovative thinking. And there are innovative thinkers out there. You guys live in California. You, you see it all the time. There are the, the, the gig economy. There are a lot of really smart people out there. And they need 
an infusion of cash in order to, and, and a national policy in order to get it seems like the administration is hinting toward that that we need to have real leadership to really start building these things up um, some issues with the space architecture that we rely on in the military realm in particular is the fact that because it's so costly to buy build and launch military satellites and we're using the old Cold War model of bundling basically throwing as many capabilities into one satellite as possible. This increases the cost. And then we can't use cheaper civilian rockets to launch those systems into orbit. So then we have to build special rockets. And by the way, they're using the RD-180 engine from Russia. Uh, don't think that hasn't been a point of contention. Uh, we have to do things to start making it cheaper to, to launch and field satellites so we can start doing things that can defend those satellites in orbit. We need space-based missile defense to fight North Korea and Iran's nuclear threats. We need the Air Force calls them rods from God. They're tungsten rods that are put into orbit and they essentially can be launched at any target instantly. No one would ever mess with us again if we had these systems in orbit. Uh, defense satellites to basically act kind of like a secret service agent protecting the president. They jump in front of the satellite systems that we rely on to deflect anti-satellite missiles being launched from China. China has anti-satellite weapons. These are missiles that can be launched. They track our satellites and they destroy our satellites. And once those satellites are destroyed because the costs involved of repairing and launching them, they won't get replaced. Another thing they have are lasers that can blind and dazzle temporarily our military satellites, our optical gear. Um, a guy from Lockheed, former Air Force general, was when I was a student here a few years back, he came and spoke and he talked about how basically the only self-defense mechanism our satellites have when they're lased like that is they shut down and they turn toward the sun. Now they're not destroyed but they are out of commission for hours and because our military systems are not yet quite compatible with civilian systems we can't just offload responsibilities to a civilian satellite so the problem is once that satellite goes down until a ground-based technician because we don't have a manned spaceflight program anymore uh... Until, unless a ground-based technician can hopefully get through to that decommissioned satellite we're blind and by the way um, the chinese have strategic plans blind the americans prevent that integrated military force from operating in a coordinated fashion and then surprise our, uh, our friends, the American friends, on Taiwan. China has not ever let go of their dream of recapturing Taiwan. And so th this is a problem. Another issue that we have, I talked about, Elon Musk is the only guy that I can think of in the private sector who has, with SpaceX, managed to break through the procurement process. You have the iron triangle of the legislators and special interests combining with the big defense contractors and then the inertia of the DOD bureaucracy. $500 billion over uh, for our defense budget, and it's not buying us what it used to. Uh, China, Russia spend a fraction on their defense budgets, and every time I wake up, I hear a different, when I worked on the Hill, I heard this all the time, a different military expert coming in and saying that, well, they're going to eat our lunch. They're, what's it buying us? There's, something's going wrong. Elon Musk is the only one who's managed to break through the procurement process and basically he had to sue his way in to be able to have SpaceX launch military satellites. And when he did sue his way in, the Air Force accepted the contracts but at the last minute diverted, broke the contracts and sent them over to Lockheed and Boeing. There was a whole internal issue because one of the Air Force officers apparently was basically taking money from Lockheed. Anyway, but that's, it, was a big, it was a big to do and 
This is the problem when you have a closed system like that getting ever bloated, ever more bloated, and no accountability. When I worked on the Hill, one of my projects was we had to go through the DOT budget for the National Defense Authorization Act of 2014. Um, that was not a fun experience. My wife will tell you I probably lost most of my hair. Um, Thomas DeVerney is a space expert, and he talks about the vicious circle of space acquisition for the military. Because of the costs involved there are, and, the, and the regulations, few program starts, expensive systems with no spares or backups, expensive launches, low launch rates. The solution, more smaller, less complex satellites that can be basically ride-share onto civilian uh, uh, rockets. Mixed constellations of both military and civilian satellites with similar capabilities. Distribute the capabilities. Increase the constellation size so it's harder for China to knock it out. Um, encourage low-cost medium launch through those issues that I talked about. And then change the export control so we can start importing better ideas from abroad. India is a leader in satellite launches. They have proven that for one rocket, they can launch upwards of 100 satellites on one rocket. It's amazing what they're doing. So we need to start figuring out what they're doing and replicating it. Um, the four main threats to America today in space, the greatest is China. Russia, I think, is overstated because their economy is tethered to the price of oil. It's never, they're never going to be able to sustain what they think they can do in space. This is why they floated recently uh, the idea of doing a joint U.S.-Russian moon base where they would be mining the moon for the critical natural resources. North Korea and Iran, the gallery of rogues, their threat is in their nuclear weapons capability. Not only can they launch nukes at us, but furthermore, they can potentially, and James Woolsey, former CIA director who previously was a chancellor of this institute when I was here, um, James Woolsey has written a series of articles how he's worried that last year's North Korean satellite launches were actually putting electromagnetic pulse devices into orbit and that they could basically hold us ransom. And uh, imagine EMPs can knock out all modern technology with the flick of a switch. Doesn't kill us, but it kills our technology, which might as well kill us. And when I was on the Hill, there was a report that came out that if an EMP detonated, upwards of 90% of America's population within two years, if it, we could not fix the grid, which we couldn't, uh, upwards of 90% would be dead. Dead. This is, this, is the, this is the stuff that keeps me up at night. Um, it's just a funny graphic I, I uploaded Kim Jong-un on a, on a satellite, kind of floating around. Everyone always gets a good laugh. Um, this is... Uh, yeah, Rocket Man, that's right. Uh, we talked about hegemonic stability theory. Robert Kagan, who's a scholar at America's Enterprise Institute, American Enterprise Institute, he wrote a fantastic book. He's kind of made a career out of knocking both the Europeans and the post-Cold War visions of an end of history. He wrote a, a book in 2011 called The End of History and the End of uh, The Return of History and the End of Dreams. And basically, he said people and their leaders after the Cold War longed for a world transformed, but that was a mirage. The world has not been transformed. In most places, the nation-state remains as strong as ever, and so too the nationalist ambitions, the passions and the competition among nations that have shaped history. After the last few years, nationalist populism on the rise, uh, the nation-state has returned in full force. America must maintain its dominance if we are to survive. Dean Asheson, former Secretary of State under, I think, Truman, he said that Americans can only exist in a sphere of liberty. If there is no liberty, then Americans cannot exist. Uh, it's true. It's true. Credit Suisse, they've accepted the multipolar world. They now analyze the pole strength of the various countries that they think are the strongest. On a scale of one to five, five being the strongest, 
America is a five for now. If you look around what's going on, we've had 2.6% GDP growth. That's thanks to low-wage jobs and the last eight years of loose monetary policy. It's not real. Whereas China's had 6.7% GDP growth, and they're going to keep having those high numbers. A modern economy cannot be number one, or rather in this case number five, uh, based on that low GDP growth. We need a tax cut. I don't know if it's going to happen by the year's end. If we don't get it, we're going to keep having these low GDP uh, growth rates. China's eating our lunch on this. The real unemployment number is 8.6%. The U6 number in uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics started uh, accounting for these things back in the 90s. And the lowest it ever got was two th in the year 2000 at 6.8%. We can and need to get back to that level of real unemployment. America is now, since 2014, the second largest economy in purchasing power parity terms. China's number one. And next year, it's believed, Goldman Sachs keeps saying next year is going to be the year that China displaces the U.S. as the world's largest economy in GDP terms. The American political system's in gridlock. This is all getting into one thing. China has a plan, and we don't. And it spaces the, the, the something I talked about most, but it's in a litany of other issues as well. But space is the thing that is both our future, it can determine if we stay on as the dominant force, and it's also our future. KPMG, the consulting firm, every year does a, a, a survey of 841 tech industry executives from around the world. They found that China is now closing the gap with the United States and leading the development of disruptive technology breakthroughs. They also uh, said that uh, Shanghai is the city that will rival San Francisco along with California's Silicon Valley as the world's leading innovation hub over the next four years. So by 2021-2020, Silicon Valley will not be the leading innovation hub. The innovation economy in China is being energized by the technology disruptions that are occurring. What we've seen emerge over time is the result of countries and cities striving to replicate and build on Silicon Valley's technology innovation blueprint and their increasing degree of success. China's on the rise. We're on the decline. Um, and they have, by the way, the China Dream, created by Colonel Liu Mingfu. He's one of the kind of lead apparatchiks of the president, Xi Jinping's inner circle. He's retired from the People's Liberation Army now, but he wrote a very explicit book in which he outlined that the United, he agreed with Michael Pillsbury, who said that China and the U.S. are in the 100-year marathon, and that beginning in 1949, ending in 2049, China plans to displace the United States as the world's leading power. Um, Xi has, has concurred with this as well. He says that by 2049, the China dream of strong nation, rich, a rich country, strong nation will be fulfilled. Very ominous rhetoric. For his part, Colonel Liu, who is a senior advisor to the president of China, he said that it would be good for humanity for the United States to defeat, or for, the, for China to defeat the United States. Let that sink in. This is their inner cadre. Um, as I talked about, it's not just about defending our existing space infrastructure. We need to develop space. We need to build up our defenses in space so that no one ever threatens us again. And we need to start looking at the acquisition of space uh, materials for creating a new economy. It is said by people like Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the eminent physicist, that the world's first trillionaire will come from the space mining sector. In the House in 2014, we passed a, a resolution that basically allowed for private companies in the United States to go out into space, capture asteroids, and uh, to develop the resources for sale. This is the future. Um, I've got some other slides. Uh, 
basically missile defense, we need that. We can do space space like Reagan wanted to. Um, killer satellites, China has the ability to launch cube satellites at our satellites with grappling claws. It's like out of James Bond, like Moonraker. And they will latch on and rip the insides out. And this is low cost stuff. This is for the cost of a cell phone, a smartphone. They can do this. Um, but I talked about the lasers, the spaceflight program, China's manned spaceflight program. It's they, they are doing in 10 to 15 years what took us 30 years. Where are they gonna be in another 10 years, given their economic growth and level of investment? Um, also, in terms of, real quickly, the resources. So, we all talk about the next revolution in energy. I'm a big believer in nuclear fusion, but it's just not worked so far. The reason is because the deuterium-tritium reaction is not as effective as what many scientists believe would be more effective as a, as a reaction would be the isotope known as helium-3. This is a rare earth mineral, so it's not uh, marketable right now because it's so expensive to get the hand, little bit we have. However, it is in abundance on the moon and throughout the celestial bodies in the solar system. China is planning their next lunar mission, the Chang'e 4, uh, launched by 2020 to study the geology of the dark side of the moon where it's believed the abundance of helium-3 and other resources are. If they detect that this is in abundance, the Chinese plan, they look at the moon as the Persian Gulf of the next century, and they look at how we dominated the Persian Gulf, and of course China needs resources to keep its meteoric rise going, so they're going to plan to basically strip mine the moon. And they're going to get, whoever gets there first has first mover advantage, the almighty first mover advantage. And we are losing right now. Donald Rumsfeld in 2001 said that we are on notice, but we, the American people, have not noticed. This is to our detriment. <laughs> I spoke uh, with J John Lanchowski before about the quantum internet. Yesterday, as I noted earlier, China has officially made the breakthrough in quantum internet. Now, in last year, I was for two years before this was even launched, I was talking about this, and I was laughed out of the room by every expert. Same people who, anyway. Uh, but they, China believed in it. They spent 10 years investing in it. They launched it last year, and it's working. Um, every expert in America said it couldn't happen, and it works. Um, this is from the news article today. Chinese researchers have completed a practical demonstration of quantum key distribution, showing that it's possible to encrypt and send data between two locations in a secure way. The announcement proves that fiber satellite quantum communications network that China has spent more than 10 years building can generate and distribute cryptographic keys for real-world purposes. These keys should render communications impenetrable to hackers. So it works basically, it's based on quantum entanglement, which is, entanglement, which is a, a, it's a string theory. Einstein first observed it, he called it spooky action at a distance. Basically, a particle is able to exist in two different places in the universe simultaneously, and by manipulating these particles at the subatomic level, data can be related at instantaneous speeds, and regardless of distance. Uh, the Dr. Michio Kaku over in Brooklyn, he's a fantastic physicist, he says that if there is intelligent life out there, it is likely they'd be using uh, some form of quantum internet. That's how advanced this is. And lastly, because I, I want to also get ahead of, of the curve here, the EM drive, the impossible drive. This is another thing the experts in the West say is not going to work. A gentleman in 1999 in England developed it. It's a propellantless engine for space. If it works, it can get you to Mars in 70 days. So imagine, think about the economic implications. If there's all these natural resources and the problem is cost of fuel, of propellant, 
This is a, propellant, a propellantless drive that basically acts like the warp drive of Star Trek. Now, I'm, that's not exactly, and I'm sure my scientist friends will, will yell at me, but basically that's what it is, Star Trek stuff. Um, China, uh, NASA, Eagle Works has invested in it, but they're fighting an uphill budget battle. Nobody believes in the West anymore. We're all skeptics. China believes. They started investing in 08. They're now testing it in orbit, in the Tiangong-2 Chinese-exclusive space station. Uh, the UK Ministry of Defense and the US DOD are interested in using the EM drive now, this is, this is years after the fact though, to uh, power sa space satellites because a propellantless rocket engine would enable the military to get close to a target without anyone knowing it was there. China's ahead of us on this because they believe in it. Basically the scientists say it doesn't work, even as the Chinese are proving it does, that it doesn't work because it violates Newton's third law of physics. Well, theories be damned, I guess. Reality gets involved. Um, lastly, whether I don't know about, you know, I'm not a climatologist, global warming, whatever, but we do know that there is a freshwater uh, reduction in available freshwater supplies. Dr. Michael Burry, the man who is portrayed by Christian Bale in the 2015 film The Big Short, Dr. Ma Dr. Michael Burry was the only man initially who predicted the housing bubble. He retired after making billions of dollars because he shorted the market. This guy's brilliant. Uh, he Basically, he, doesn't, he runs a bed and breakfast with his wife, but he does still invest in one thing. He's trying to figure out how to short water because he thinks that's the next big bubble. And what we see is um, uh, Brahma Shalani is the only guy I know who's writing about the water wars, water, peace, and war, confronting the global water crisis. Basically, water is the new oil, if this theory is correct. Well, guess what? There is one way to overcome water shortages. These celestial bodies in the solar system have ice. If we can figure out how to use the EM drive to cut down distances, there's a whole new market up there. We can overcome a lot of the problems where we're going to be looking at over the next 30 to 50 years. Um, China, again, this is something they're looking at. We're kind of just talking about it. They're not really bringing the pieces together for a coordinated strategy the way that the, the PRC is. And I think my...